Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today I'm happy to welcome Rowan Hooper. Rowan is a science writer and host of the New Scientist podcast. Rowan, thank you for joining me. Hey, Kirk. Thanks for inviting me. You're the author of a very recent book, and we were just discussing how the UK title is different from the US title. In the UK, it's How to Spend a Trillion Dollars, the 10 Global Problems We Can Actually Fix. But the US publishers called it How to Save the World for Just a Trillion Dollars. That's an interesting difference there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was always obvious what I was trying to do with the book. Um, and it was to, to when I discussed it with my publisher in the UK. But when you, got, when you come to it completely cold... A title like How to Spend a Trillion Dollars, it doesn't really tell you what the book's about. So the US publisher, I think very wisely said, look, let's just cut to the chase here, not leave any ambiguity around it. Let's tell it like it is. And it's how to save the world for just a trillion dollars. So they, they just put it all out there. And I think, you know, I appreciate what they've done with that. Yeah, because if you think of the UK title, it's like, what's the most expensive yacht I can buy? Right. Or can I buy Buckingham Palace, for example? Yeah. That yeah, sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So a trillion dollars, and I was thinking about this. When I was growing up in the 70s, we had millionaires. We would hear that the U.S. national budget was in the billions. Now we've got billionaires and national budgets are in the trillions. It seems like a whole order of magnitude leap in just a few decades. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? And um, and actually, we, we should get that leap again in our, in our not in our lifetime, even, even sooner, you know, because... Um, Jeff Bezos is predicted to become a personal trillionaire by 2026. Um, and maybe Elon Musk will, will get there around the same time. But, you know, like, like you say, um, in the 70s, we, we had millionaires. Um, and recently, we've had billionaires, more and more of them. Uh, and, and it won't be long before we'll have personal trillionaires, which is a, a mind-boggling and mind-blowing thing. It's quite... It almost seems obscene. I mean, it's bad enough to have people who have hundreds of billions, let alone yeah. billions, but should they be able to get to that level of wealth to have to give it away? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the big question. Isn't it? I think that wealth inequality is the it's probably the biggest it's ever been. Um, just today, there's been reports out because we're in the run-up to Davos, um, you know, the World Economic Forum, and uh, there's a report showing how how many billionaires have been created or been made just since the pandemic. So people have been making a lot of money uh, off of the pandemic. Um, and yeah, quite rightly, a lot of people say, well, that's that's not right. You know, there's too many billionaires around um, and, and there's too many people in extreme poverty, you know. So, yeah, I think I think it's uh, certainly a, a, a barbed question. You know, it's a it's a question that a lot of people are asking, but I don't know how we how you do anything about it. Um, that's, a, that's an entire different question. My book is really about, um, it's not about so much as the philosophy of whether billionaires should exist as, um, as a bit like what, what I would do if I had that money and, and I was forced to spend it, you know, not, and I wasn't allowed to just sit on it or make a, you know, bond villain lair or buy an island or something like that, you know, which would be nice to do for a little bit. But if you have so much money that you really, you know, what could you do with it? And actually, you mentioned those those people. But um, the other um, interesting one is um, Mackenzie Scott. So Jeff Bezos's 
ex-wife. So she got um, a huge payout in their divorce settlement in the in the tens of billions. But because she got a lot of Amazon stock, even though she's been giving away a lot of money, uh, she's been making it, you know, uh, she's actually had trouble giving it away because the stock keeps improving and she and these billions keep piling into her account. Um, but she's someone who's really interesting because she is giving away money in a way that normal people would give to charity. You know, just give we would give lump sums to a charity. Right. And just say, right, there you go. Go and use it. Whereas whereas um, Bill Gates uh, and all the other ones are setting up investments in fun in in companies that they want to develop um and in some cases it might be very 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 worthwhile it, you know especially gates doing all the um, malarial uh tackling malaria trying to wipe out malaria but he's also investing in lots of companies that he wants to you know develop so carbon carbon removal companies especially nuclear uh, modular nuclear power and nuclear fission. Um, so most billionaires are are investing when they do when they do do philanthropy and charity. They they're doing it with a bit of a I don't I don't want to say ulterior motive, but there is something else. They're doing it like they like they know best, which is how they made their money. So what prompted you to write this book initially? Um, it was a number of things. It, first of all, was um, really just. Uh, there's several things I heard. I heard winners of the lottery saying, uh, "It's not going to change me. I've got these millions of dollars or, or millions of euro, uh, and ah, uh, you know, it's not going to change me." And it was a sense of frustration of like, oh, "No, it should change you. <laughs> it would change me. I know what I'd spend the money on right away." You know, um, and then it. Then I thought, it's kind of a, a nice pipe dream, isn't it? You think, what would I do if I had this giant lump sum of money? So I chose a trillion dollars because it was a, you know, it's a nice round number. It's around one percent of world GDP, and it's the 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 amount that, you know, you hear a lot about these days. Um, so as you say, governments, you know, tot up their 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 budgets in in trillions. Um, so it's a number that comes into play when you want to do something massive. Um, so I chose a trillion dollars. Thought, what could I? What could I do? What could be done if you had control of that money? Uh, and that's that was the starting point. You point out early in your book that a trillion dollars really isn't that much. Yeah. And, and that was the real shock. This is right in the first, in the introduction. Mm. You say, as you say, it's 1% of world GDP. You talk about private equity firms held $1.45 trillion in what they call dry powder, yeah. which is, is that the coins down behind the sofa kind of money? <laughs> It's basically the money they've been given to invest, which hasn't yet been invested. So it's just piled up cash, effectively. But you know, yeah, that's so. That's not even the the wealth that that, that billionaires have in, have invested and accumulated in in various things. It's just the money sitting around. So there is a shocking amount of money sitting around, and that's why I thought, even though it, it's an absurd amount of money for a person for a person to think about having. Um, in the big scheme of things, it's a it's a figure that's in play, many you know in many different in many different ways. Yeah, you talk about the two point two trillion dollar economic stimulus package at the beginning of COVID in the U.S. Right. Another two trillion ended up being borrowed or created in the rest of the year. The leaders of the G twenty nations agreed on a five trillion dollar fiscal policy stimulus. 
And I'm sitting and looking at my bank account that's getting me 0.2% interest. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I must be in the wrong line of work here. Yeah. Well, don't ask me for any financial advice. I'm only, only a journalist as well, you know. But um, yeah, exactly. There, there's money. Once you start thinking, noticing it, you know, you, you see this figure everywhere uh, in the worth of, of those big companies, Facebook, uh, Apple, uh, Amazon, of course, um, and uh, and in just in the various in the ever-growing piles of wealth that the billionaires around the world are accumulating. I can't remember. It's like, uh, I can't remember what the, the wealth is of the trillionaires. I think it's $162 trillion. It's, it's, that's the top 1%. Um, the top 1% of people control $162 trillion worth of assets. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of money out there. So this is, this is it. This is, imagine you could get just a tiny amount of that one one hundred and sixty second of all that money, you ask them all to just chip in some spare change, yeah, because that's what it is to them. And you could solve some of the world's biggest problems. Have you been in touch with any billionaires about this? I have. Um, the only that you know, for obvious reasons, they're very very hard to get hold of. They protect themselves very well. But I did have um, a good interaction with Elon Musk um, before the book came out, and I sent him a copy of the book. He reads a lot. Um, he was interested to read the book um, and he read it. Um, and I was obviously hoping he was going to give me a blurb for the cover um, and that would that would definitely shift a few copies. He didn't give me a blurb for the cover. But what was amazing is that in chapter seven of, the, of my book, um, that's about how to get carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, at the end of each chapter of the book, I list things that I would spend the money on, right? And in, in chapter seven, one of the things I would do is start a competition, a very lucrative one, and give a $100 million prize um, to the first uh, group company that can uh, draw down carbon from the atmosphere in a, 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 at a particular level or for a particular price. Um, and what amazed me was after reading my book, Elon Musk started that precise competition with a $100 million prize. Uh, it's the Carbon X prize. Um, it's just made out interim payments. Uh, so he wants to stimulate uh, the development of technology that will uh, draw down carbon out of the atmosphere at scale cheaply. And, and he put up $100 million um, uh, to, to start this competition. So as soon as that was launched, I emailed him straight away and said, whoa, but, you know, you were inspired by my book. And that's amazing. Uh, and he never replied. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know for sure. But I like to think I, I spent $100 million of his money, which is really cool. Well, I would guess that a book like this is going to be read by, if not by the billionaires, at least by their assistants who give them a summary of the book. Right. You know, the, the people in philanthropy, you've been writing about science for a long time. You know what you're talking about. So they're going to look at this to get ideas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is my hope, uh, that... This will filter in in that way to uh, towards um, billionaires, people who want to get rid of some of their money, you know, and give them some ideas. And that is that is that is the absolute dream that will happen with this book. So when I started reading the book, so there's ten ideas that you have. We'll discuss some of them. My first thought is, there's no point curing disease if we're going to die from climate change. There's no point giving universal basic income if we're going to die from climate change. So shouldn't that be the one and I mean, you explain all the variables, but carbon capture seems like the one we need the most urgently, even though we don't really have the technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
I actually thought the same thing halfway through writing it. I, I kind of put my head in my hands, thought this book should just be about climate change because, or certainly climate change and the biodiversity crisis, because like you say, if we don't solve those, the planet might break down and we've all had it. So no, nothing else matters. Um, but, but I didn't want to, there are many problems. I wanted to look at what you can do to solve many different problems and in the world. Um, and also, you know, the thing is, each I try to spend a trillion dollars in each chapter, and sometimes I can't. Sometimes the problem takes more than that. Um, but the point is, you know, we've been talking about the hundred sixty-two trillion dollars in private private assets around the world. Um, you could actually solve all the problems in my book and still have a lot of rich people around. You know, so um, I wanted to show that um, okay. Climate change is the most serious problem we face and the biodiversity crisis, um, for sure. And that's why there's four chapters in the book tackle tackle those in different ways. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to show that there's other things we can do as well. My, my thought at the end of the book was that you really need all 10 of these. Y yeah. That that there is a certain priority. I would say that finding some aliens is at the bottom of the list from priority, <laughs> even though it's really interesting. Yeah. But... That most of these ideas are pretty essential. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and they are all being worked on in different in different ways and with different amounts of funding. Um, but this is the thing, you know, we can go much further than we are um, with a bit of extra money, and in in many cases, it's not a lot of extra money. So I agree, finding aliens is not one of the biggest uh, issues that we face, right? But but for like not many billions of dollars, and I'm talking, you know, tens or twenty billion dollars, you could send some really detailed missions to, uh, you know, the moons of of Jupiter and Saturn, and really, really explore those places. And you, I think there's not a bad chance of finding something there. So to f to find a breakthrough that would be we have found alien life is would be such an incredible thing. I think it's worth spending a, a few billion dollars on it. So Elon Musk could do that instead of buying Twitter. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> he really could. Um, and and you, you, when you look at it like that, you could do, there's lots of things you could do, um, you know, but people do their personal, you know, what they want to do. I'm, I don't know what, what, what's behind the Twitter thing at the moment, because with many of other, with most of other, um, most of Elon Musk's other investments, you can see why he's doing it. Um, so with there's a vision, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's because he wants to go to Mars, right? And everything is is leading towards that. So, and that's that's what Tesla is all about, really, in the long run. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about how you used Scribner to write this book. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article was a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. 
Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So you wrote this book using Scrivener. How long have you used Scrivener? Uh, years, actually. I've had, I've had to do an update um, a couple of times, I think, when, uh, when it's been re- completely revamped. And uh, there's been actually there was a period where uh, my, it went out of date and I mustn't have used it for a few months or something. I went back on it. It was like, oh, where's everything gone? And thankfully, it was <laughs> still there, but I had to get that up- updated version to retrieve my stuff. So uh, I must have been using it for 10 years now, good 10 years or more. So have you used Scrivener for your journalism, for your articles, as well as for writing this book? I, I sometimes have used it for um, journalism, but mostly I do keep it for big projects. Um, so, that, yeah, books books normally, or some occasionally when it's a, a, a very complex, uh, long story. Um, I, I, I find it a treat, actually, because I'm still used to doing um, journalism basically on word and with piles of notes like physical notes and if you use scrivener for it it just it does organize it uh in a, in a much better way um but but it tends to be book writing is what i really use it for yeah so how did you approach this in scrivener did you, did you create one file for each chapter and work like that yeah so i have i started with one one project file um and then it, within those that each chapter heading had its own subfile and i just chuck stuff in there um and then as things start to get, to really snowball um i started to make separate projects for each each chapter because there's so much research that goes in anything even slightly interesting i chuck it in there um and then you can just have one place where you look at everything and you can edit really nicely move stuff around um and then as the project moves on, you can start to consolidate some of those things, different versions into into your master file. So, dip, you know, finalized versions of each chapter get into the master file and and work with it like that. This is a pretty complex approach. <laughs> no, it is. Scrivener allows you to do that, but most authors I've talked to just they've got a single project, or maybe they have a second project file for previous books if it's like a fiction series. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how other people use it, and and I've. It's for me. It's been completely self-taught how I use Scrivener. I've, so I've, there's probably loads of stuff, loads of features actually that I don't know about because I, you know, I just do it like use it like a kind of giant scrapbook, um, and and I find it very helpful for that. Um, but but yeah, um, I, I I really like the flexibility of having all this space. Maybe it's a bit of a I don't know if I'm yeah a bit of a hoarder of information, but. It's great just to be able to shove everything in there and have different things, different levels of how how likely I think this might be worth keeping or not, you know. So, um, but just so nothing's lost, it can it can all go in the file. There there is a lot of data in your book, and I don't mean it's like a data dump when you read it, but you can tell that there's a lot of data behind it for you to come to all these conclusions. Right? Is it like hundreds of articles for each chapter? Yeah. It is. Um, certainly those are the, the ones that have been consulted. They might not all be cited in a chapter, um, but uh, I'll have gone through that much stuff um, during the research for it. And then a lot might end up not being used um, or gets edited out. Um, but yeah, in, during the process, that, that's the amount I would be, be consulting. Yeah, That's a lot of work. 
for this sort of thing. We had a, a biographer on, Charles Shields, and he would spend, I think he said, two years just doing the research before he writes. And I think biography is similar to this sort of research where you have to get every single thing possible and then weed it out when you get to the, the writing phase. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, though, there's something like COVID happens, <laughs> which is like just as you're about to submit the finished book, uh, this new new virus pops up and then goes pandemic and you, ah that's <laughs> like seriously. Well, you only had to really change one chapter for that, right? Or yeah. a couple. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think it's chapter two, which is curing all disease. And even even in the the pre-COVID um, version of that, I I had put money towards um, pandemic preparedness, um, which you know most governments had had it on their list but hadn't invested enough in it, even though they'd been urged to do so by scientists you know scientists had been warning us about this yeah. for years and yeah. and now as we speak we have monkeypox yeah well there you go yeah exactly so um hopefully some lessons have been learned i mean i don't mean about monkeypox because that, that's not as contagious uh it's not as much of a, of a of a worry but there's no reason you couldn't get a pandemic flu um popping up anytime soon so um yeah let's thanks for that rowan <laughs> <laughs> let's let's hope uh, that you know some lessons have been learned. So you do have a chapter cure all disease, and and that reminds me. I think it was Richard Nixon in the seventies who launched the war on cancer. The idea was that if we could launch a project to send men to the moon, we could do the same for cancer, and it hasn't really worked out. No, but I'd be interested to see how much money was spent on those two projects. Um, you know, because what did the Apollo program had. In today's money, it had about $220 billion spent on it. And I, I wonder how much Nixon put into the war on cancer, in inverted commas, you know, maybe not that much. Um, but it's a, it's a harder problem to solve than putting people on the moon, actually, uh, which was an exceptionally hard problem. But uh, yeah. Because we now know that there's not just a monolithic cancer. There are many, right. many different kinds exactly. and, and ways yeah. it works. Yeah. One thing I was thinking as I was going through, because you're talking about, you know, people see that it costs this much to do it. But mentioning the Apollo project, the trickle down we got from that in terms of technology were worth, you know, many times more than the investment. And that would be the same in any of these things, maybe not finding aliens unless they give us some... <laughs> <laughs> you know, new knowledge, but yeah. um, any, any saving life on Earth, settling off planet, there would always be technological benefits. Oh my God, that would come. Yeah, that that's a really important point to make. Uh, this is not money we're spending; it's money that we're spending, we're investing now to save us having to spend much more money in the future. So, in almost this has surprised me. I didn't really grasp this at first, but with many of the the problems I'm talking about, so solving poverty, um, tackling uh, the global health, uh, and certainly all the climate change, biodiversity issues, um, all of that money, if you tackle these problems now, you save far more than in the future. So people say, oh, where are we going to get a trillion dollars from? We're not going to spend that. And you hear that now with uh, all the Green New Deal plans and a lot of people saying, we're not going to invest in renewables. It's too expensive, but it's money that we're going to save and, and it creates new things and it saves money and creates more things. So it's it's an incredibly um, economically sensible thing to do, let alone, you know, let alone morally uh, uh, sensible. And, it, you know, it just stops the world 
going to hell you know so it's it's just it makes sense on many levels so you just said a word that clicked with me morally because one of my notes is why wouldn't you spend a trillion dollars on awaking spirituality philosophy ethics morals things like that on educating people to be better people yeah it's a great question and um uh, you know you could spend the money on on the media like imagine so I, I thought about I did think about this so Fox News is worth 20 billion dollars so with my budget I could easily buy the entire of Fox News and then repurpose it to become an actual news operation <laughs> you know and and you'd have an amazing reach I mean maybe something else would then come into the vacuum but that what you could do with a media spend of this level is incredible and with the educational reach um, but I I decided to just limit myself to spending on actual scientific problems or environmental problems or things that would improve uh, human health and welfare because otherwise I, I felt the book would snowball out of control and I just wanted to keep it to those things but absolutely if you did put more money in that I think it could change the world in a very very positive way. Of course, then you get the criticism that you're trying to brainwash people and influence them. And you have the problem with different belief systems in different countries. And, you know, that's that's a rabbit hole down which you probably don't want to go. Yeah, I mean, I think there'd be ways around it, though, because you could just give the money to different independent organizations in different countries and say you spend that on, you know, within certain guidelines, you know, you may, maybe wouldn't want to have it given it, give it to sort of overtly religious um, or sort of ideological um, organizations, but um, it could be spent culturally in a culturally appropriate way in different countries. And there'd be way- there would be ways to do that, I think. Yeah. Spending money on the arts, for example. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like, we, we do need more money on that. But as I say, I just wanted to sort of limit myself to what I, what I know about. So which of these, we, we talked about carbon capture, climate change, which of these is your favorite which, which would be, if you had two trillion or one and a half trillion, which would be the one that you would put a trillion into? Okay, so what I would do is put it into a, a biodiversity scheme that would also draw down and store and protect a huge amount of carbon. So that means I would get two, two problems for the price of one, which is tackle the biodiversity crisis uh, and tackle the climate crisis. Um, and to do that, I would buy and protect and restore huge areas of ecosystems in, in really vital areas across South America, uh, Africa, South Asia, uh, uh, Southeast Asia as well, um, and and just protect those areas, really make sure that we start to restore and protect these vital areas of biodiversity uh, around the world. Um, and this is being done on a smallish scale um but it it needs to be done much more um and i think if we did that on a if we if we did invest a lot of money on that sort of thing it it would buy us a bit more time um to decarbonize our economy and get ourselves off of fossil fuel and get more get renewables up up and running in a much bigger way um so that's what i would do I'd spend uh, spend it all almost all on um biodiversity restoration and and carbon drawdown projects. One thing about your book is it's not science fiction. Every single idea you discuss already exists, but just at a very small scale. Some of them are at at the stage of development, but some of them are already applicable, but they haven't scaled up yet, right? Right. Yeah. That was another thing that was important for me was that 
all the problems or all the solutions that I present in the book have to be things that are, that we can do now. All right. So I did at first think about um, investing in a, a project to um, send a, a starship to another star, another star system. Uh, and there is this project underway. It's called the Hundred Year Starship. Um, there's a there's a project project Starshot as well. Um, but they these are long term things. You know, we're not going to be able to do that for a while. Um, so I didn't want to. As much as I think they are exciting projects and it's cool to do it, I want to do things that we can do right now. So we can go to the moons uh, of Saturn and Jupiter right now. Let's so let's do that. That's fine. Um, but let's not go to another star system yet. You know, I want to spend the money on things we can do right now. Okay. Have you read any interesting books lately that you can recommend to our listeners? Uh, I have. Um, I just read this. This is a novel um, by Emily St. John Mandel, uh, Sea of Tranquility. It's a great um, kind of uh, time travel with a twist story. Really, really lovely story. Um, and I also just read um, a novel called Regenesis by um, journalist George Monbiot, um, which is um, all about the transformation we have to do to world agriculture, um, which I tackle in chapter eight of my book, um, uh, which is called Turn the World Vegan. Um, and he's, but he's done, done a whole book, basically a whole book on this in, in much greater detail, uh, which I, I thought was a really amazing piece of work. So, yeah, there are two things I've read recently that I've really, really rated. Okay, Rowan Hooper, thank you very much. Your book is entitled, depending on the country you're in, How to Save the World for Just a Trillion Dollars or How to Spend a Trillion Dollars. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to chat. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.